Proverbs 24, 10 through 12. The Word of God says, If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, Behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Pray with me, friends. Father, I would plead with you to open your heart to us in your word. Father, our text today and the topic today is tremendously convicting. And I pray that we will find grace in Christ even as we are called to lives of actual, not just theoretical, but actual obedience. And I pray, God, that you will, in our land, put an end to evil practices, put an end to the evil that is so prominent. And may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, I need your grace to preach your word faithfully today. And I believe we all need your grace to hear your word faithfully. I plead with you, Lord, that you would give us that, that we might be faithful to you. Change our lives and glorify your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated, friends. Can I tell you that I'm not sure that I could come up with a topic for a sermon that I want to deal with less than what we're doing today? Now, I don't give that to you as an apology, by the way, or a complaint. I'm not saying this isn't important because it's absolutely important. What I'm saying is that I wish with all my heart that the issue that we discussed today was not an issue in our world, period. Today, for a little bit of time, I want to speak to us out of the Word of God about the Christian's response and our call to properly respond to the issue in our land of abortion. Across the nation, many churches have set aside today. Some will spend time next week uh, doing something they refer to as Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Pastors in pulpits all over the land are going to be speaking to believers about the value of human life and the evil of the legalized practice of killing children. And though I do not often have us do topical messages and I do not often have us match the calendars of others, it really does seem fitting that we take a moment in the Word of God today that we would speak graciously and firmly and clearly about this issue. I want you to listen to me very carefully here. Today we are going to call sin what it is. Today we will offer the forgiving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to sinners. Today we will urge Christians to prayerfully take action. Today we will hold out a hand of love and sympathy to those who have fallen. If this message hurts you because of something in your past, please understand that I have deep sympathy for you. 
And I want you to know, to truly know and experience the gracious forgiveness of Jesus Christ. If this message today offends you because of your worldview, please understand that I sympathize with your discomfort, even as I will strive to help you to see from Scripture why your worldview must change to be in line with the Word of God. May we be a people of grace and truth, of grace and truth, of grace and truth. Why do we need to talk about this issue? Why, why bring up a topic like abortion? The issue is here. The question of human life is of the highest importance and the prevalence of the practice is simply mind-blowing. Abortion is everywhere in the United States. It's all over the political scene. It's all over the news media. It's all over the, the lobbyist groups. When I speak of abortion, I'm speaking of the deliberate procedure where a human being is removed from a woman's uterus so that the child is killed. I'm not here speaking about miscarriage. I'm talking specifically about the willful choice to perform a medical, surgical, pharmacological procedure that will end the life of a child growing in its mother's womb. And let me add, for the sake of our time here today, we're not going to talk about some of, the other, some of the other ethical issues here. We're not going to talk about the rare cases of, in which maybe the growth of the baby could physically endanger the life of a mother. Things like ectopic pregnancies or uterine cancer or maternal heart disease. In point of fact, the percentage of abortions performed in the United States because there is thought to be a physical medical necessity to preserve the life of the mother is incredibly low. Under 1% of all abortions performed are performed for the health, the physical health of the mother. And any honest look at statistics will tell you that between 93 and 95% of every abortion performed in the United States is an abortion performed on a physically healthy woman carrying a physically healthy baby. How prevalent is abortion in society? Listen to me, and I pray the Lord will break your heart. Since the legalization of abortion in the United States in 1973, nearly 60 million abortions have been performed in our country. That is 10 times the number of Jews killed in the Holocaust. According to the very pro-abortion Guttmacher Institute, 18% of pregnancies, excluding miscarriages, in 2017 ended in abortion. Did you hear that number? That's almost one out of every five. And while statistics, honestly, cannot be perfectly compiled because every state does not actually, promote, does not actually report their stats to the CDC, the Guttmacher Institute estimates that in 2017, 862,320 abortions were performed in the United States. If you look at a conservative webpage instead of a liberal pro-choice webpage, the number will be reported as closer to a million. 
One more stat for you from Guttmacher. Are you still listening to me? At the rates of abortion in 2014, about one in four women in the United States will have an abortion by age 45. Again, one in four women in the United States will have had an abortion by their 45th year, according to that statistical estimate. That means, that means that you probably know somebody who's had an abortion, whether you know it or not. You know somebody who has considered having an abortion, You know somebody who has helped somebody go get an abortion. You may know somebody who has pressured someone into getting an abortion. And I say that because I want to make you and me aware that the topic that we discuss here in our church setting is not some sort of random ethical political discussion that we have about people out there. It is far closer to home than you think. The sanctity of human life and a Christian response to issues of life and death are going to touch every last one of us in one way or another. So we need to be able to respond to this topic with a godly mindset. And friends, that's why I'm preaching this sermon today is because I haven't done one that really went piece by piece, thought by thought, step by step through this. And this is a great time for us to hear it here at Providence. I've done this other places. We've talked about this in other settings. But it's time to, this is one of the times I want to do it from the pulpit so you know where we stand and what we should think as a church, okay? Okay. What about science? I mean, everybody says that Christians are anti-science, right? We're the anti-science group and all the other folks who have other worldviews, they're the pro-science folks, right? You've heard this. Many people in the world would say that a scientific mind would communicate to us, well, the, the fetus in a woman's womb is merely a clump of cells and it's not a human life. After all, how could science ever prove when something becomes a human being? I want to read you a quote from Robert George. He's a scholar. He's an ethicist at Princeton. He wrote something a few years ago, and it's just so sweet and clear. Looking at scientific research and putting to rest the foolish argument that science doesn't know when someone becomes a human being. Quote, From a purely biological perspective, scientists can identify the point at which a human life begins. The relevant studies are legion. The biological facts are uncontested. The method of analysis when applied to the data is universally accepted. Your life began, as did the life of every other human being, when the fusion of egg and sperm produced a new, complete, living organism. An embryonic human being, you were never an ovum or a sperm cell. Those are both functionally and genetically parts of other human beings. Your parents, that's what they were part of. But you were once an embryo, just as you were once an adolescent, a child, an infant, and a fetus. By an internally directed process, you develop from the embryonic stage into and through the fetal, infant, child, and adolescent stages of development and ultimately into adulthood with your determinedness, 
unity, and identity fully intact. You are the same being, the same human being who once was an embryo. It is true that each of us in the embryonic and fetal stages of development were dependent on our mothers, but we were not maternal body parts. Though dependent, we were distinct individual human beings. That is why physicians who treat pregnant women know that they're caring not for one patient, but for two, of course, in cases of twins and triplets, even more. When we debate, George is going on here, when we debate questions of abortion, assistive reproductive technologies, human embryonic stem cell research, human cloning, we're not really disagreeing about whether human embryos are human beings. The scientific evidence is simply too overwhelming for there to be any real debate on this point. What's at point in these debates is the question of whether we ought to respect and defend human beings in the earliest stages of their lives. In other words, the question is not about scientific facts. It's about the nature of human dignity and the equality of human beings, end quote. An honest scientist, friends, will tell you the abortion debate has nothing to do with humanity. It has everything to do with ethics. When people argue, supposedly scientifically, against calling the growing child in a woman's womb a living human being, they usually combine four particular issues, four particular measures that I would say to you, Robbie George would say to you, none of them, none of them have anything to do with your humanity or your value, but there are four things that people will hold on to to say that the child in the womb is not a human being. And if, you don't, if you've never heard someone do it before, there's an acronym. The word SLED, S-L-E-D, can give you the four categories. They, the S is size. The L is level of development. The E is environment. And the D is degree of dependence. I'll go back over them, okay? Size. Did you know? Think about this. Look around the room. Look around the room. See the people. Your size does not make you any more or less human in this room than anybody else's size. Right? I hear little people. I hear big people. Do any of you in this room believe that you are any more or less human than anyone of any other size in this room? Russ is bigger than me. Is he more human? There you go. <laughs> How about L, level of development? How far you have progressed in your cognitive or physical abilities does not make you more or less human. That's ridiculous. Who's the smartest person in the room? Point at them. Don't point at me. Are they more human than you? No. Environment. Get this. Where you live does not change whether or not you're a human being who has value in the eyes of God. I grew up in the redneck region of the southern tip of Illinois. It's one of those places where we're so far from the normal part of the world that they pipe in sunlight. We were not less human because we were rednecks living out in the country. 
whether you're in this room or outside, where you are has nothing to do with whether or not you're human, does it? The last one is degree of dependency. This is the most common argument, by the way. But if you depend on another person for your survival, that still has nothing to do with whether or not you are essentially a valuable human being. It's just, it's just not the case. Go to any hospital where somebody is reliant upon the physician, the nurses, the people around them to care for them, and ask if the people in the hospital beds are human. They will say, absolutely, but they're totally dependent for now. Yeah, and the reason we keep caring for them is because they're people. As I mentioned, we want to deal with this topic in a godly way. And if we're going to do that right, I want us to start now with the grace of God. So, I'm going to give you one point here. I think we're going to have four points and a lot of other notes to take, okay? First point, if we're going to get this right, remember the grace of God. Remember the grace of God. I want to read to you. You can write this down if you want some scripture references. I'm going to be a lot of scripture references today. Psalm 103, verses 10 through 13 say, He does not deal with us according to our sins. Who wants to just amen that right now? He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Is that not good scripture? I want to say to those of you who have been touched by these issues closely, maybe in fact even have been guilty, God knows your pain. God understands who you are and what you're going through and what you've been through and what you feared. I'm not saying that God approves of every choice you've ever made. Depending on your role and what's going on in your life, you might be guilty of great sin. Many of us are. But God is not at all unsympathetic. Neither is God eager to just squash you and judge you. God has offered grace to all people in the person and the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody, regardless of how heinous of your past offenses, can be forgiven. And we must do it by coming to Jesus, receiving the forgiveness that he purchased for us on the cross. Find life. Listen to those verses I read. Think about them again. God is compassionate. God is kind. God treats us like a loving father. He removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. In Isaiah 1.18, the prophet writes from God, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. This morning, you might sit here reminded of tremendous guilt and despair. I don't want to lead you to despair. I want to lead you to grace. While sin is real, grace is real. Our blood-red guilt can be washed whiter than snow by the grace of God in Jesus. 
First John chapter 1 verse 9 says to us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is that not great news? When we come to know God through Jesus Christ, he promises to purify us from all of our unrighteousness. When we look back at our sin and we agree with God about it, God promises that he will purify us from that unrighteousness because of Jesus. So ladies and gentlemen, God is gracious. His grace is sufficient to cover any sin because the sacrifice of Jesus is of infinite value. He can cover your sin. Since there is no one and no thing worth more than Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus can cover even your worst, your most embarrassing, your most humiliating, your most I want to hide it failure. Let that lead you to comfort. Let it draw you to Jesus Christ. Let it lead you to worship our gracious God. Let it give you courage. Courage to hear what the rest of the word of God has to say to us today. But one more thing. Do not let this description of God's grace lead you to continue in sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2 say, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? What's the answer to that question? May it never be. By no means. You almost had one good one over there. What was it? God forbid. forbid. Right? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, the ESV says. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So we open here, friends, with grace. Are you with me? We're not here to judge each other. We're not here to hurt each other. But we're also not going to pretend that sin doesn't exist. I will look at you and you can look at me and we can both say sinner. And that's okay if we got Jesus, right? I'm not going to pretend to be good. We are a group of forgiven sinners gathered under the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm guessing in a room of this size, we may have somebody who doesn't yet know the grace of Jesus. We're here to hear God's word. We're here to receive God's grace. We're here to learn to follow him faithfully. May we do that today. Now, once you've thought about grace, and by the way, for some of you, this might be the only point you need. You may just need to sit and let that roll around all over you all morning as it draws you to cry out to Jesus for mercy. I would love that for you. But once you've thought about the grace of God and once you've determined not to allow God's grace to be a license for sin, now we move on to our study in the proverb. Point number two, be strong in this dark time. Point number two is a call to be strong in this dark time. Look at verse 10 of Proverbs 24. It says, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. There's an old saying, it's an old proverb in, in America. A friend in need is what? A friend in need is a friend indeed. And I think we all know what that's like, right? When you're in trouble, you need your friends to come alongside you and offer you health, help and comfort, right? And if we find ourselves in need and that's the time that our friends, quote unquote, abandon us, what do we feel about them? Maybe not the best of friends, are they? If your friend checks out the moment you hurt, not a good friend. 
Well, in the same way, friends, if you faint, if you are slack, if you are lazy, disinterested when the day of adversity comes, how small, the Bible asks, is your strength. If you boast of being a strong, committed follower of God through Jesus Christ, but when a troublesome time comes, you try to avoid the issue, you try to hide out until the storm blows over, if you lose your mind on Facebook because you just can't take it anymore, how small is your strength? How weak is your faith? Even without all those statistics, even without the grisly details of what actually occurs during an abortion, because it's awful, it is clear, is it not, friends, from looking around our world, from reading the news, if you read the news, that we are living in a day of adversity, in a dark time. Would you all agree with that? Well, we don't want to be weak. We want to be strong, because God tells us to stand strong. And listen to me, like I said to you all last week when we talked about the temptation of Jesus. One of the worst temptations you face is to think, I've got to handle this in my own strength, or oh no, God won't do anything. God can do anything he wants to, and God is fully in charge, so we rest in him and we face the hardship, even if it leads us to our own deaths. A death that you die while serving the Lord Jesus is a death worth dying. Don't fear, don't hide, and don't let the world eat you up. But what are we supposed to do? Point number three now, defend those who cannot defend themselves. It's a day of adversity. You know it. Get ready and defend those who cannot defend themselves. Verse 11 says, rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. What are we supposed to do? We are to rescue the ones we can. We are to do what we can to hold them back, the Bible says, from the slaughter. We are to defend the helpless. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 says, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth. Judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Psalm 82, verses 3 and 4 say to us, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. How do you do that? How do you, Christians, work toward rescuing a child? Because that's what this is about, right? That's what we're talking about today anyway. There's other ways these verses apply. But how do you rescue a child? How do you save a life? There are many ways. And the first thing I'm going to tell you is this. Go look. Find out what it is you personally can do. Read about the ways that all kinds of churches and all kinds of ministries are working together to save lives across our land every day. And I want you to think about this in such a way that you find a way that fits your personality and your giftedness. Find find a ministry that treats people in a godly way, in a loving way, in a respectful way instead of an ugly way and join those people in, in trying to save lives. What do I mean when I say it fits your giftedness and personality? There are some people that go out and speak and challenge people with just, again, words and reasoning and 
apologetics and philosophy as they're going toward the abortion clinics. If that matches your personality, get after it. But if you're someone that that doesn't match your personality, there's other things you can do. I'm not telling you you have to be the street corner preacher. Neither am I telling you that that's a bad thing if that's, what you, if that's the way God shaped you. There's a lot of things you can do. But here's the thing. You actually don't need me to tell you how you can join in. You know why? Because you are grown people with internet access, right? How many of you have something like this? Then you can figure it out. As a friend of mine once said, a lot of times when it comes to right Christian living, Christians are like teenagers, and the parents actually need to say, here's the fridge, go make your own sandwich. You figure it out. You open the word, you look on on the internet, you find pro-life ministries that are around you that fit who you are, fit what you can do, and find ways to get involved. Find a way to join. Now, I know that some of you guys would want me to give you a couple of ideas, and I'm going to not actually name particular organizations. There's some that we support as a church. There's some that we may support in the future as a church. But I'm going to give you some thoughts, okay? What could you do? Well, one, you could adopt a child. If, if you are in of the right, again, age and financial ability and your home's in a way that you could or you could go that direction, think about adopting a child. That might save a life. Or financially support a pregnant single woman who would not give birth to her child if she doesn't have the resources to do it. Or pray for and just talk with somebody who you know is going through a hard time thinking about making this decision. Educate other people about fetal development. Yeah, we got some folks in our church that know a lot about fetal development, yes? So some of y'all have learned way more about fetal development in the past few years than you ever personally wanted to know. But you know that babies that are only weeks old are utter, utter miracles. And tell people about them. Maybe you give money to provide ultrasound technology to a Christian pro-life organization because it will show women pictures of their babies so that they see that the babies in them are living human beings. That's a great ministry. And there's, a lot of, there's more than one way to do that. How about this? Actually put on your calendar to regularly pray that God put a stop to the practice of abortion in our land. You can do that, can't you? Talk to women as well who have had abortions. You know, one of the worst things, and again, I had a friend say this to me once, and I thought it was super helpful. It's great to have praying and protesting Christians at the front door of the abortion clinic. It's really also good to have Christians on the other side, out the back, talking to women who have already gone through it, Many women who have had one abortion will have another one. But if you would reach out and just talk and offer grace and offer an alternative, you may save lives. Help them to find the grace of God in Christ. You can vote for political candidates who will oppose abortion. You can send letters to the government expressing your desire that lives be saved. If you send letters to the government, please don't be a jerk. Be decent. I do not want to hear that any of you sent a letter to somebody and the police came to investigate you. That's probably bad. 
find ways to support adoption ministries so more children can be put in homes. Participate in gracious and nonviolent protests and rescue operations. Educate other Christians about the biblical arguments for the sanctity of human life. I was listening to one sermon this week where someone was talking about this. He said, hey, start writing music and poetry. Maybe that touches somebody's life about this. I don't know. That's a real simple list with ideas that you could do to start trying to rescue people who are being led to death. And there are many, 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 many more ideas out there. You be creative, you be responsible, you be prayerful, and again, as my friend would say, you go open the fridge, figure it out for yourself, and look for ways for you to be helpful in saving lives to the glory of God. I would urge you, though, don't make excuses. Actually take an action, even one step, to see to it that the Lord ends the evil practice of abortion in our land. Let me add to also, it is important that as you do a thing, whatever you do, I want you to learn to speak about this issue with clarity. That's important as we talk about how we take action. Clarity is important. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11 says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So we're not just supposed to avoid participation in evil acts. We're not just supposed to support or not, to not support evil acts. Not only are we to work to try to protect the vulnerable, we are called by God to shine the light of truth into these dark corners. Because guys, one of the reasons that Christians are so inactive and so complacent when it comes to issues related to life is that we actually often allow ourselves not to see what's happening. So I want to be careful here Some people will hear what I just said and they'll say, that is a call for me to speak with gratuitous and graphic detail all the time. That is not what I'm saying. You guys know me well enough to know that's not what I'm after, right? Some people hear a call like this and they're like, man, the pastor just told me I need to get in people's faces and be harsh. And again, you know me better than that. I'm not saying that. But I am saying this, do not allow yourself to use euphemistic language that hides the truth of what's going on. Let me give you one example. I'm going to talk about the use of the word fetus. You guys hear that word in the news all the time, right? People use that word as a way not to speak of a baby. They're using the word fetus so as not to speak of a human life. But you know what? Changing the label of a child in the womb does not change the fact that what we are speaking of is a child in the womb. By the way, you know what the word fetus means? It means baby. The word fetus does not and never has meant a clump of amorphous cells. The medical profession who wants to hide the idea of life in the womb has started using it as if it means something else, but the word fetus has never meant anything other than baby. We must not adopt the world's language to allow the phrase, quote, the removal of a fetus, to stand when the actual intentional killing of a baby is what's happening. Now, by the way, am I saying that fetus is a bad word? No, it's a great word. But if fetus is a word that somebody around you is using to hide their eyes from the moral guilt of shedding innocent blood, that's something you, Christian, should expose. Fetus means baby. 
There are going to be times that we need to talk with people with clarity about the issues at hand. We need to be willing to say to people that abortion is the illegitimate taking of an innocent life. The illegitimate taking of an innocent life is murder. Abortion is the murder of a human being. You should speak that, not smugly, not nastily, but with the honest and tear-filled voice of a person pleading with the lost world to repent of their sin and come to Christ before it's too late. Let me bring us to one last point here the, this morning. Point number four. These both words begin with K, not N. Know that you know. Do you hear me here? Know this morning that you know. Listen to verse 12 of Proverbs 24. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? One thing you cannot do, at least from today forward, say you didn't know this is a problem. Would you all agree that that's at least true in front of you right now? If you say that, God knows you. God knows what you've heard. God knows your heart. And God will respond to you not based on how good of an argument you make before him, but based on the truth of your heart before him and your obedience to him in his word. Christians, you know the need and you cannot leave it all to somebody else. James chapter 4 verse 17 says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. You cannot know what's right, do nothing, and be free of guilt. God calls you to act, to rescue, to pray, to save people from death. And it's time for you and me to act. Now again, what does that action look like? For you it might only look like prayer at this season in life. Praise God if you do that. For you, it may look like getting on the street corner. For you, it may look like giving money. For you, it may look like going and volunteering at a women's uh, center. I don't know. You think about it. Now, one thing that I'll say to you is I actually haven't, you probably have noticed this, haven't taken the time this morning to make a scriptural biblical argument for why abortion is a sin or that the sanctity of human life is a thing to be preserved. So I want to do this as we wrap up. I just want to conclude by giving you a bunch, not as many as it sounds when I said that, of verses with a topic tied to them. I'll put it on our Facebook page sometime later. The list I'm going to read to you is not exhaustive, but it will tell you that children in the womb are human lives and lives that must be protected. Okay? Here's a thought for you. Again, if you're writing notes, you can do as much as you can and I'll get them to you online, okay? A child in the womb is a living human being. Luke chapter 1, verse 41 says, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. That sounds like a living thing, doesn't it? A child in the womb is being fashioned by God. 
Psalm 139 verses 13 to 16 says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. God is the one knitting that baby together. A child in the womb already has a purpose in the kingdom of God. Did you know that? Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5, Jeremiah says, before, or God said, to, God said to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. What else? A child in the womb should have protection in the kingdom of God. How do we know? Exodus chapter 21 verses 22. 2 to 25 say when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out but there is no harm the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judges determine but listen to this if there is harm if somebody does harm to a child that was in the womb then you shall pay life for life eye for eye tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Imagine if that was our practice. A child in the womb should never die for the evil of his or her father. I bring that one to you because people often say that a child conceived in terrible circumstances that a woman should have the right to abort that child. But a child should never die for the sins of its father. Ezekiel 18, 1 through 4. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? Quote, the fathers have eaten sour grapes. And the children's teeth are set on edge. God says, as I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no longer be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul that sins shall die. Then verse 20 says, the soul that sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the fathers suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. We don't punish children for the sins of their fathers. Here's another one for you. Suffering or potential suffering is not sufficient cause to end a life. Let's give you a verse on suffering from 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. Paul talked about his own suffering and said, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And right here you might say, yeah, boy, if a suffering's that bad, death is better. What does God say to Paul? He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. 
For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Do you guys understand how much I can personally identify with that? Some of you guys would say, boy, it would really stink to be a blind guy can't see the room that life might even not be worth living if I knew my child had that maybe they shouldn't live you know what God uses even weak vessels like me we dare not destroy them a child in the womb is a blessing from God Psalm 127 verse 3 Through five says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. A child in the womb is created in the image of God. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God takes very seriously the shedding of blood. Genesis 4, 9 and 10. The Lord said to Cain, where's Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Murder is an attack on the image of God. Listen to that again. Do you hear that again? Murder is an attack on the image of God. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, right after the flood, God says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why, God? Why? For God made man in his own image. Shedding the blood of a child pollutes the land. Apparently we have music. Psalm 106, verse 30. Shedding the blood of a child pollutes the land. Listen to this verse. Stick with me. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Did you hear that? The land. What do you think the Lord sees when he sees our land? More murders by 10 than the Holocaust. Let us speak out to save the lives of those made in the image of God. If you faint in the day of adversity, Proverbs 24.10, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Pray with me. Father, we bow. And right now, Lord, we confess our sin and the sin of the land. God, we are a blood-guilty people because our nation has shed more innocent blood than I could imagine. We are a blood-guilty people because primarily out of a desire to ignore your design for men and women, primarily out of a desire 
to ignore your counsel regarding sex and marriage, primarily out of a desire to throw off the restraint of being under the hand and under the rule of a benevolent God, we have turned against you and declared that we will be our own people. And while I know that many in this room have never tried to say that, as a people, as a nation, we are guilty. And God, we see in our streets, we see on our news media, we see in our politics that in so many ways, Lord, the things that we face are only the beginnings of what we have earned. God, have mercy, I pray. I have absolutely no right in myself, and we as a nation have absolutely no right to ask that of you other than the blood of Jesus Christ. And so it is in the name of Jesus that we, the people of God, say, God, please have mercy. Instead of pouring out your wrath, which if you do, it is righteous, and we will say, amen, the Lord is right. But God, I pray that instead of pouring out your wrath on this land, would you radically, gloriously draw the hearts of people to the Savior that our land might be governed and led and behave differently. Let us repent, God, I pray. In the church, we repent, Lord, of not caring. We repent of ignoring things. Again, Lord, I know many people in this room, it may be that all we can do is pray. May we pray with deep, deep concern. But those who can find ways to serve, I pray you'll help them find ways to serve. Those who can take action or give money in the right way, help them know what to do. And God... Make us life-saving in this church just by being people that see people come here and be saved so that they're not in that world. There's so many things we need. Again, Lord, so much of what we've said here is so sharp. And maybe there is someone, maybe there are several someones in this room who have sinned against you in a great way in this area. I pray, God, that you help them know they're not beyond your reach. But the grace of Jesus Christ, you saved Paul. He participated in a murder. You saved David. He caused a murder to cover up sexual transgression. You can save any one of us, and your mercy is great because the grace of Jesus Christ is great. God, have mercy on us, I pray. Teach us, grow us, change our world. We ask it, God. In Christ's holy name, amen.